I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to Exodus chapter 30 tonight. We're continuing our walk through Exodus, looking at the what in your ESV is titled uh, the census tax. Exodus 30, verses 11 through 16. Before we read the passage and take a look at it, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for this time we have to look back at what you revealed to your old covenant people, the Israelites, in a very basic way regarding what believing in you looks like. And we thank you that we can see in shadows and in types a small portrait of what redemption in Christ actually is. And we ask that you would grant that as we read Exodus 30, this passage in front of us, that we could see what's going on there, but more than that, that you could fast forward our minds and our hearts into the new covenant so that we might be a people encouraged and also uh, who know what to do with the words before us. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, Exodus uh, chapter 30, verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more. The poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this evening. So loved ones of Hope uh, Reformed Church and everyone with us here tonight. Uh, it was July 1, 1874, uh, Charlie and Walter Ross were four and six years old. They were brothers playing on their front lawn and uh, neighborhood in uh, Germantown, Philadelphia. And a couple days earlier, uh, some men had given them candy and kind of befriended them a little bit. Well, one day, these men actually drove by on this July one day and asked them to get into their buggy to go get some fireworks and candy. And about an hour into this trip that they were taking with these uh, boys, Charlie began to cry and they pulled over and gave Walter 25 cents and told him to go buy some fireworks. And the buggy pulled away when Walter uh, left and Charlie was never ever seen again. Walter was actually returned to his parents and the parents got a note, a ransom note, handwritten. There's copies of it. You can read it all over online, demanding the parents pay a ransom of $20,000 to get Charlie back. Now you can read the end of the story. It's not really a heartwarming story. It's actually a difficult story, but that was the first official ransom story in the history of America, and uh, many have taken place since. My point is this, we all know this, what is a ransom? That's what our passage is dealing with. A ransom is a price paid for a life. If someone kidnaps somebody, you pay them a ransom price to get that person they stole back. That's the idea of a ransom. And what we discover in the passage before us is that a ransom is to be paid uh, in order for lives to be spared. And when this ransom is paid, people cross over to the other side into God's ownership. It's a really beautiful picture of 
salvation. So I want us to notice just two things in the passage in front of us. Lives are spared through the payment of a census ransom. Secondly, those who pay the census ransom cross over into God's ownership. Take a look with me, if you will, at verse 12. Under this first heading, lives are spared through the payment of a ransom. When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. So if you want to live while the Israelites are taking a census, each person counted a male 20 years old and above, likely a census for military duty and to give an, get an account of how powerful we are as a nation militarily. If you wanted to live through this census, you had to pay a ransom price. Now the price paid by an Israelite male in Moses' day was uh, two-fifths of an ounce of silver about. We're told it was a half a shekel. A shekel is an amount of weight. It's a measurement of weight. We're not told that it was a half shekel of gold or silver or, or wheat or whatever the case may be, but a lot of people assume that it was a half shekel of silver, which would put the value of the payment in today's day and age at about 10 bucks. Pretty small price to pay. If you're gonna be counted in the census as a 20-year-old male fit for active military service, you would have to pay about $10 and that money would be used toward the building of the tabernacle. Now, why was the ransom to be paid? Very clearly, that there be no plague among them when you number them. So there was nothing wrong with taking a census. In fact, the Israelites took a census in Numbers 1. And we're not told explicitly, but they must have actually paid this tax when they discovered that there are a total between Israel and Judah of 1.3 million military men uh, fit for fighting. But if you know King David's life, way near the end of his life, he took a census. And again, we're not told exactly, but we can deduce that it must have been out of pride. The census tax was not paid and 70,000 men died as a result of David taking that census. So there was nothing wrong with taking a census, but taking a census was a big deal and it had to be done in the right way. And the way you made sure that everybody lived through it was by paying that ransom price. Now, uh, what was uh, the ransom price again? Uh, the ransom price was very straightforward. It was very cheap, about $10 worth. And if you notice verse 15, each man had to pay the exact same ransom price. The rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. So the Lord was teaching the Israelite males, hey, none of you are more valuable. If you come from a family of tremendous wealth, you're not more valuable or more important than someone from a really poor family. The rich didn't have to pay more. The poor did not have to pay less. Now, as we look at this, it'd be easy to get lost in the details of this ransom payment. We could do a lot of conjecturing and a lot of creating images, as it were, uh, as we run off to the new covenant. But the old covenant is only a foreshadow of Christ, and it only gives us pictures and hints about Jesus to come. So if we look at this passage through the lens of having to do with Jesus, painting a broad picture of him, then there are some things that really stand out about uh, new covenant realities. Uh, the first is this, the whole idea of a ransom. You have to make a payment in order to live. If you don't make payment, when the Lord comes to exercise his authority in the form of a census, you don't live. Pretty simple and straightforward. And if you know your New Testament, which I know we do, Mark 10, 45 makes it clear that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. There's that same language popping up. 
1 Timothy 2.6, Paul writes, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now that word ransom in the New Testament passages I read is defined this way, what is given in exchange for another as the price of his redemption. It's the ransom price to free a slave. It's the liberty price, the blood of Christ, which purchases believers, freeing them from all slavery to sin, the ransom price which Christ paid. Hebrews 9, 15, you're going to have to nerd out or geek out with me a little bit here. I'm going to go through, oh, like four more passages, five more. Hebrews 9, 15, a death has occurred that redeems, that word catch that, redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And that word redeems is literally the release affected by payment of ransom. So the emphasis is on when ransom is paid, the person's released from their sins. Galatians 3, 13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And Galatians 4.4, 4, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Again, the language of redeem in both of those passages means to purchase or buy someone out of the marketplace. To see a person for sale in the marketplace and take every opportunity to buy them. To pay the price for their purchase through the exchange of money for a life. And then Titus 2.14 we're told Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And again, the language of redeem there is to release on receipt of ransom, to release by paying the full ransom, rescuing from the power and possession of an alien possessor. What do each of these passages teach us that is embedded in Exodus 30, but made very clear in the new covenant is that a price needs to be paid for our lives if we are to avoid the plague of judgment. The plagues in Exodus 30 that are talked about, that the people in King David's, knew, uh, in King David's day knew very well personally when 70,000 people were wiped up, and the plague of God's judgment that we know will be coming on the last day, if we want to live through that, then a ransom needs to be paid for our lives. Now, what needs to be paid? 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 7.23 say this, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 7.23, you were bought with a price. And the language of bought there has to do with to buy in the marketplace to make purchases in the marketplace so that ownership transfers from seller to buyer. And the language of price is interesting language. It's called a perceived value. What has value in the eyes of the beholder? It's the value willingly assigned to something by the buyer. So when Paul says you are bought with a price, he's saying that as it were, you were in the marketplace, the agora, you were for sale. God walked in there and was willing to pay a price based upon how he valued us when we were for sale as slaves in our sin. And this is where things get very interesting. In the old covenant, in Exodus 30, you paid 10 bucks. You had to pay something, right? <laughs> you got to pay. All that silver likely is accumulated and goes into fund the tabernacle. But in the new covenant, what is sort of mind-blowing for us to think about 
is what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.18, you were ransomed, there's that language again, you were bought from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. So the price God paid to redeem us isn't King Solomon's amount of gold, isn't the net worth of Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, and I don't know who the latest and greatest are, all of that net worths combined, it was actually something way more valuable. The price God paid for us is the precious blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know how much you'd be willing to pay for your enemy. I highly doubt that if we did a poll tonight right here at Hope or all around Pella among believers, that any of us would say, yeah, you know what? To have one who's currently my enemy become my friend, I'd lay down the life of one of my children. I doubt you have any takers. But I want us to think about this because the Bible puts the father-son relationship and family language powerful. God the Father willingly decreed and the Son willingly took it upon himself to lay down his life and shed his blood all the way to death, not just any death, the shameful death of the cross, so that we could be ransomed so that we would no longer be slaves to the devil and to our sin and to death and to the world, but that we could actually have a transfer of ownership take place in our lives from those items to God. Now, I want to drive a couple things home before we look at our second point. I promise this won't take long. The first thing I want to drive home is this. Each of us has greater value than the world will assign to us each believer is of tremendous worth. So when the world value is fixed based on merit, when we go out into the world living in Pella, we're living in Oski or Leighton or Monroe, wherever it is we live, right? Wherever it is we work, maybe some of us work in Des Moines, wherever the case may be, we run in circles where the world assigns a value to us based on merit. And each culture assigns a different value to different items. So if you live in Boston, you all know where this is going. What what determines a person's value in Boston? Education. So if you want to be valuable in Boston, you better have a lot of initials, right? BA, MA, PhD, PhD, PhD. Just keep on going. And you'll be valuable in Boston. You have that in Pella, people will be like, yeah, okay, so you're smart, right? Not a big deal. You go to Boston, it means something. Hollywood, your worth is determined by looks. If you don't look good, they're not going to want to cast you in movies. People will just move on by. You go to New York City, again, money, right? The money capital of the world. If your net worth isn't much, then you're not much in New York City. But if you have a big net worth, people will love to become your friend and to speak well about you. And Pella, your worth is determined by your family name, right? If you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. I realize that's fading, but it's still there. By how well put together your marriage and family appear, by your work ethic, by your outward appearance and health, by your wealth, and by your sports achievements. Now, we could go more, but that's enough, right? <laughs> if you want to become someone to the people of Pella in our society, in our culture, then, and, and you want people to talk positively about you, change your name to a Dutch one, tell everyone your family life is always amazing and full of smiles, work 60 hours a week on your light weeks, become a bodybuilder and spend hours every day lifting and training, stay in incredible health, Buy the biggest, fanciest car and house your banker will let you afford and donate money in order to get your name on a plaque. 
People will glow about you. If you want someone, if you want to be someone that people of Pella talk about negatively, stay single, get divorced, get uncoordinated, get out of shape, get sick, work 40 hours a week, have a Spanish or French or English last name, and live within your means while being generous toward God without the praise of men and sounding a trumpet, not letting your right hand know what your left hand is doing, and plenty of people will have a lot of negative and gossipy things to say about you. It's kind of sick, isn't it? But every culture assigns value based on merit. We live in Pella. These things operate this way. And I can't encourage you strongly enough in light of the passage that we're looking at here, in light of the price God paid to ransom you, to ransom every believer who lives in this town, to ransom every believer all over the world, to quit listening to what the world says your value is. The world says, yeah, you're not much in our circles. Who cares? The God of heaven and earth has said that I am so valuable, he would lay down his only begotten son so I could have eternal life. What else matters? <laughs> Who cares what value the world assigns to me, right? Now, it's easy to say on Sunday in church. It's easy to believe here in the midst of a worship service, right? We say, absolutely, but we go out into the world and we're going to discover beginning tomorrow, probably beginning tonight, that all these value judgments from people in the world, if we really listen to them, they're going to start beating us down until we will discover that we're actually not worth much. And God wants every one of his people to know that indeed in his eyes, we're incredibly valuable. If you don't believe it, just look at the price he paid. He didn't pay a billion dollars. He didn't pay $10 billion. He paid way more. He paid the blood of his only begotten son. The second thing I want to drive home here in this first point is each believer is equally valuable in the sight of God. The rich shall not give more, Exodus 30, 15. The poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. It's, it's easy to lose track of this as believers. We can come to wrongly view other believers as more or less valuable than ourselves and run into a whole host of problems and infighting in church life and in the life of our relationships with other believers. But let me ask you this, which, which child of yours, if you have more than one child, do you value the most? Right? There's not a parent in the world that will answer that question other than to say <laughs> all of them, each one individual. I remember calling my dad-in-law for advice on a few things and throughout the years, and he would always say, hey, Zechariah, how's my favorite son-in-law doing? And I would say, awesome. How's my favorite dad-in-law doing? He'd say, great, right? <laughs> We began that. I'm his only son-in-law, obviously. He's my only dad-in-law. But the point is, yeah, you're, you're communicating you're special among a lot of other special people. You are uniquely special, but you're not the only one. And beloved, uh, what God has declared to us uh, regarding the price that he's paid for us is that we are as valuable as every other Christian that he saved. Not more valuable, not less valuable. Don't lose track of this. Maybe my favorite lyrics in the world are from a Keith and Kristen Getty song we sing every now and then, my worth is not my own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, it's not my worth, but my worth is in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. My values fixed, my ransoms paid at the cross, or getting out this very simple truth. If you want to know how valuable you are before God, in reality, not as the world lies to us, but in reality before God, look at the cross. Your value has been fixed. The ransom's paid. 
How much did God pay to get you out of slavery? The blood of his son. There's nothing more valuable than that. The second thing I want us to see is that those who crossed over in the census come under God's ownership. And this is in verses 13 and 14, but you, it was probably hidden here. Let me explain. Verse 13 of Exodus 30, each one who is numbered in the census shall give this half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. And then in verse 14, everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. So what happened once the ransom was paid is that you crossed over from one side to the side of those who are counted. And there are two untranslated words in both the ESV and the NASB in verses 13 and 14 that I want to highlight. If you have an NIV, you'll actually see this. It translates it really well. Here's what the NIV writes. Let me read it. Each one, this is Exodus 30, verse 13, each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give a half shekel according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras. This half shekel is an offering to the Lord. Verse 14, all who cross over those 20 years old and more or more are to give an offering to the Lord. The language, they usually just combine this word crossing over and being numbered into one idea and say, hey, those who are numbered. But what's going on here is those who are numbered are actually paying a ransom price. And at the payment of that price, they're crossing over into those who are numbered. It's language of almost relocation. They're moving from one world to another world of being counted as God's people. And I wouldn't want to spend too much time dealing with this, but it's exactly what happens to the Israelites when they go from Egypt to the wilderness. Remember, they crossed over the Red Sea on dry ground. And it's exactly what happens to every believer in salvation. Colossians 1, 13 to 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and crossed us over into the kingdom of his beloved son. Your ESV translation reads transferred. We've been crossed over into a new world. So crossing over into God's kingdom through the payment of a census ransom means crossing over into a kingdom where God is the authority. This is incredible. The Israelite males would have caught this. Wow, I'm part of the census in order to live. I've got to pay this ransom. And when I pay the ransom, I cross over and I'm actually numbered now among God's people. I'm in the census. They would have gotten, and everybody watching this would have understood what's going on. A.W. Pink, regarding what the census meant to the Israelites, said this, when God numbers or orders anything to be numbered, taking the sum of them denotes that they belong to him and that he has the sovereign right to do with them as he pleases. The action itself says of the things numbered, these are mine, and I assign them to their place as I will. So when they pay the tax, they're numbered, they cross over, and in the very act of doing that, in the very act of God calling a census, God is saying, these are mine. They belong to me. They are in my service. Once you had crossed over, you were now in the Lord's army at his service. So once you and I, beloved, as new covenant Christians have been ransomed, we cross over to the other side, we're eligible for war, but it's a different kind of war now. It's a spiritual battle. We're now eligible for war in God's kingdom in the new covenant, not taking ground physically, but growing more and more 
into the image of Jesus Christ, his son. When that takes place, God is exercising his ownership over us, saying, I took the census like Caesar Augustus, right? How great and big is God? I take the census. These people are mine. I own them. In Titus 2.14, the language of ransom and God's ownership is put together, and so is it put together in 1 Corinthians 6. I want to read both those passages to sort of drive this point home. Jesus Christ gave himself up for us to redeem or ransom us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself ownership, a people for his own possession ownership who are zealous for good works. Whoa. So when God ransoms What's pictured in Exodus 30, when God ransoms somebody, he's saying, you're mine now. I own you. I bought you off the slave market. You are now mine. And 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, familiar words for us. You're not your own. For you were bought with a price. Again, Paul making it crystal clear that when we are bought, we are no longer our own. It means God owns us. When we're ransomed, we're his. We belong to him. We are not our own anymore. Being ransomed means we have come under the authority of a new Lord who possesses us and owns us. Might sound a lot like slavery, and it is. It's the most delightful slavery in the world. Every human being is a slave to something. We're either a slave to something created or we're a slave to the God who redeems. And slavery to him, belonging to him, is the most joyous, delightful life that there is anywhere on this planet. In fact, if you belong to yourself, that is the worst kind of slavery ever. Alan Noble, he's an English professor at Oklahoma Baptist University. He wrote a book called You're, You're Not Your Own. John Fickard actually gave me or mentioned it to me and I picked it up and read it. It's called You're Not Your Own, Belonging to God in an Inhuman World. And in this book, he's got a chapter called I Am My Own, I Am My Own, and I Belong to Myself. <laughs> And he's describing what life is like to own oneself and to have to make your own identity. And here's how he describes it. No one has the right, he's describing our American culture, no one has the right to define me, but in order to have an identity, I need others to see and affirm me. And in order to get people to see me, I need to express myself a lot, right? Expressive individualism. The more people who witness and affirm my identity, the more secure I feel. When your identity requires public recognition and affirmation, you can never really stop expressing yourself. And the terrifying thing is that everyone else in society is doing the exact same thing. Everyone is on their own private journey of self-discovery and self-expression so that at times modern life feels like billions of people in the same room shouting their own name so that everyone else knows they exist and who they are, which is a fairly accurate description of social media. How can we cope with such competition? That's what it is to belong to yourself. I define my own identity. I have to go out and create it. I am my own and I belong to me. Well, if that's the life that's being lived, it's a life of tremendous futility and the only hope is that you have a bigger voice or a lot more to brag about. Because if you don't, then you are going to be devastated to find out that other people's lives are better and that they're better at advertising them. Do you understand the joy, the delight, the privilege of belonging to God and serving him as the Lord who ransomed you from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers? It's, it's incredible, beloved, that we belong to him. 
being under the ownership of God who has paid the highest ransom price ever for you, the blood of his son, is the delightful ownership, is the most delightful ownership in the world to be under. Owning ourselves as burdensome, being owned by sin is miserable, being owned by the devil tastes like mold wrapped in a candy shell, being owned by death is hopeless. But being owned by God, being bought by him, being purchased by him, and now glorifying him with our bodies in every way, belonging to Jesus and being equipped to serve him in our zeal with good works. It just doesn't get any better than that. Let's pray.